text for our consideration this evening is our first lesson from Exodus 24. I'm going to re-read it for you. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up twelve stone pillars representing the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls. The other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Then Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise up his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. Brothers and sisters, some meals are more significant than others. You've had a long day at work, you just need to get something in you, so you stop at Taco Bell. Taco Bell will do the trick. When you're hosting your future in-laws for the very first time, Taco Bell will not do the trick. So what you eat and whom you're eating with matters, makes the meal significant. You've had a long day, you want to watch a show, you grab a plate, you go to the couch. Or you're having people over, you're having friends over, you're having family over for Thanksgiving dinner, you will probably sit at the table. So where you sit and how you eat, what you wear, is also a factor in what makes a meal significant. You see, these meals that we eat that are functional, that just get the right nutrients into our bodies so that we can survive, those serve a purpose, absolutely. But those times when we're sitting and eating with other people, something very special is taking place. Something very significant is happening in those moments, those really special meal times. And it's the details that make the difference between the two, between Taco Bell on your way home from work and Thanksgiving with your family. In our first lesson for this evening from Exodus 24, we are witness to the most significant meal that has happened heretofore in the history of the human race. God is eating with people. Now it's just a little clause at the end of our text, but a lot is leading up to it, this amazing moment. You have to wonder what it would have felt like to be one of those elders of Israel, right? Now they didn't pose these philosophical questions that bigwigs might say, does God have a stomach how much does God need to chew his food before he swallows? No, they were likely just sitting there, probably hardly even eating themselves. They were probably just amazed that they were sharing a table with the most 
high God. How did that happen? How did we get there? Well, it certainly wasn't by accident. It wasn't like God came to them and said, said to Moses, Hey, do you know 73 other people? I have this really great rub I'm putting on a brisket. You guys have to come up and try it. No, this was very planned, systematic. Lots of details led up to this meal. And it's the details that show us how significant this is for us. You see, there is a problem. God is holy and we are not holy. When you share a meal with people, with friends, with family, that's that special thing that's happening, that feeling that you feel that makes it so positive, we call that fellowship. We call that unity. We call that solidarity. You are sharing something with the people around the table. You are level with them. You are in their company. You are a community. You see the problem with us trying to have fellowship with God, holy and unholy, doesn't mix. So something's got to happen. Someone has to change. Either God or us have to change. And God's not going to. If God changed his holiness, if God modified his holiness, changed his expectations, changed who he is so that he could have fellowship with us, then he would no longer be God then he would no longer be just and peaceful. He would no longer be powerful and in control. He would no longer be loved. We would st- he would stop being God if he stopped being holy. So that, And that wouldn't be a God we would want fellowship with anyway. So in order for this fellowship with God thing to work, we have to change. We're the ones who have to ascend and become holy so that we can stand peer-to-peer with God. That's what God was communicating to the Israelites after liberating them from Egypt. At this point in Exodus, God has laid out for them the book of the law. The Ten Commandments have made their appearance already here in Exodus, as well as plenty of laws about how the Israelites were supposed to govern their nation now that they were an independent nation. They had laws about what the tabernacle, their house of worship, was supposed to look like and what they were supposed to do in their And the central message was clear. You want to come to God. If you want fellowship with God, if you want to be holy like God, then God sets the terms. God does not leave it up to us to figure out what a relationship with him looks like. God doesn't liberate us from our sins so that we can come up with a version of faith life that works for us. No, God sets the agenda. He sets the terms. And so he won't be impressed with our attempts at making a holiness that works for us. He won't be amused by our surmising, by our assumptions about what level of church attendance works and is good for us. He is not amused by what level of of studying and being interested in his word and diving into his word that is his expression, what he has spoken to us. What level of that works for us? He's not impressed with our with our figuring out how much suffering for his name we want to do or how much following his will we want to do or how much loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us we feel comfortable doing. No, he sets the terms. He sets the agenda. The Israelites hear the book of the law and did you catch their response? 
We will do everything the Lord has said. And you don't have to read that far further into Exodus to see how miserably they fail at that. Like us, perhaps they overestimate their own personal holiness. Or like us, perhaps they underestimate God's holiness. Either way, in that moment, I think they were sincere. In that moment that they said, we will obey God's will, they understood something to some extent. They understood that God is holy. And they understood that being saddled up with God, being bound to God in covenant, was worth their while. This was something that was going to be good for them if they could keep it up. And they also realized what you and I know so well. There's no other option. If we don't like God's terms, if we don't like God's will, if we don't like what God expects of us out of our lives, there's really nowhere else to turn. There isn't another God you can go shack up with, another God that you can bind yourself to. That's not going to work. And so the Israelites jump in. Let us into this covenant, God. We will do it. The very next thing Moses does, he gets up early in the morning, because he's got a lot to do. He grabs some of the young, able-bodied men from Israel, and they get to sacrificing. They grab bull after bull after bull after bull, kill it, drain its blood, hoist it onto the altar, burn it entirely. Then Moses takes half of the blood and he splashes it against the altar and against those 12 stones that were to stand as a memorial to the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he does something else that I notice none of you are chomping at the bit for us to start doing. He takes the blood and he splashes it on the people. Do we do that? Why? Why get the people all messy? Because for the rest of that day, and the next day, and honestly, probably the next day, the Israelites would look at that blood on their skin and on their clothes, and they would see something so real, so true, that if you can't make holiness happen, this is what happens to you. If you can't keep up your end of the bargain, if you can't handle your end of the covenant, what happened to that bull on that altar? That's what you and I deserve. See, of all the bulls that were sacrificed in the Old Testament, all the sin offerings and fellowship offerings that were made, not a single one of them effectively atoned for our miserable failure to keep up our side of the covenant. And so Jesus sat in the upper room with his disciples. He takes a piece of bread. He says to them, this is my body. Something that no one was used to anyone saying about food up to that point, nor, nor ever since has anyone said it about food and been as correct as Jesus. And then he takes a cup of wine and he says about that wine, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Once again, not exactly something anyone would have expected him to say about blood, about wine. What was he saying? My body, just like that bull in Exodus, is going to be mutilated, sacrificed. My blood is going to liberate you 
is going to put you in a covenant. You see, someone has to change in order for us to have fellowship with God. God's not going to change. We're the ones who have to change, and that's why Jesus came. Jesus came into the world to be your Savior. He came into the world to change you, not to change God or any of his expectations. But what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 6? You have been washed. You have been sanctified. You have been made holy. You have been justified by our Lord and by the Spirit of our God. By Jesus' death, he effectively did what no bull, no goat, no sacrifice could ever do. He made atonement for your sins. And through his resurrection from the grave, he guaranteed that not a single one of those sins still lurks around. He guaranteed that what happened to that bull on that altar is never going to happen to you because it happened to him. And through your baptism, God bound himself to you and bound you to himself by making you holy through faith. And Jesus offers us communion to bind us to himself. Every step of this lesson, from verse 1 to verse 11, is in lockstep formation with the way that covenants were made in the ancient Near East, whether you were an Israelite or a different nation. If you were entering into a treaty, a covenant with someone, you would read the terms. This is the terms of our agreement. You would sacrifice some animals to show what either side deserves if they break the covenant. And then there would always, without fail, be a meal at the end to show the solidarity of these two teams, these two parties. And so when the 74 people, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, when they went up to Mount, on Mount Sinai and when they sat and ate with God, the significance was not lost on them. They were ratifying this covenant. This was more than grabbing Taco Bell on their way home. This was more even than Thanksgiving meal. This meal meant something so important that they were now yoked with God. They were now bound to God in covenant. And so what does Jesus do? The night he was betrayed, he gives us a meal to show that he is yoking himself with us. He is binding him to us and us to him through communion. Again, this is not something he gives us to decide what we will do with it. Communion is not up for grabs the way people can describe what it is. Jesus is very clear what this meal is supposed to accomplish. Just like you can't go up to Mount Sinai and look at God whenever you want, you can't approach God however you want, but you got to let God set the terms, so it is with communion. As Paul said in our second lesson from 1 Corinthians 11, those who have not examined themselves, those who are eating and drinking in an unworthy manner, better not come up to the table. And all Paul is saying with that, and all Jesus is saying with communion, is that communion is for sinners. And so if someone wants to take communion and doesn't think they're a sinner, don't take it. If someone doesn't think that they need God to make them holy, then the way that God makes us holy through word and sacrament, not for them quite yet, is it? 
No, communion is for people who know that they're not worthy. Communion is for people who know that they're unholy. Communion is for people who know that they need God's grace to carry on and to continue to be God's people. And that's exactly what he does for you in the Lord's Supper. When members of Trinity come up for communion in a couple minutes, it's going to be like you're participating in a very one-sided vow renewal ceremony. Like one where the husband grabs the mic and he's so overcome with emotion for his bride that he just spits all the vows into the mic. He's so excited he wants to reiterate all his wedding promises to his wife. And then when he's done, he just drops the mic and then takes his bride and leaves. That's kind of what happens in communion. When you come up and receive your Savior's true body and true blood for the forgiveness of your sins, he is reaffirming the covenant of grace with you. The new covenant. That you are bound to God not on the basis of how well you have obeyed his laws, but on the basis of what he has done for you. Christ never wavers in his commitment of love to you, but he knows you need to hear it again and again. He knows you need to experience it again and again, and he is willing to offer it as much as you need. Here is my grace, he says through communion. Take it. It's yours. I am with you. And he doesn't wait for you to say your vows back. He doesn't wait for you to promise your life back to him. No, Jesus invites you up. He says your forgiveness, your sins are forgiven. I love you. Now go back to your seats. The way God's grace works, he shows us his amazing, unconditional love. He calls us to be his people. We remember that meal. We remember that fellowship we have with God. And as you go this evening and into the rest of your life, remember the meal. Remember what it means, ponder what it means to be holy now. And to be yoked together, bound together in grace to a holy God. Amen.